I think it comes back to the same old thing again. You know, do you really understand why you're doing this? That's the first thing. Because if you think um, this is just a quick way to make money, and virtually guarantee failure. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, corporate leader, in fact, if you're a leader of any type of organization in South Africa right now, you have a lot on your mind. This is a complex space. This is a, a country that is diverse. It's a country that has numerous political, social, and economic challenges. But in the middle of all of that complexity is an enormous amount of opportunity. A lot of what determines your ability to see that opportunity is your attitude towards it. And a lot of that determines what kind of culture your organization will have. My guest on the show today is Ian Fur. Many of you will know him as the founder of the Sorbet Group. He is a serial entrepreneur and he is deeply, deeply passionate about building businesses that rely heavily on culture to succeed. In fact, he believes that you can't build a great business without a laser-like focus on a people-centric, human-centric culture. He believes that servant leadership is the key to business success. We had a fascinating conversation, not only about his experiences at Sorbet and some of what he's done in between Sorbet and now, but about the business that he's just started, a coaching uh, and leadership development institute called the Hatch Institute. We specifically talk about his passion for race relations and how important he believes race relations are going to be for leaders in South Africa as we embark on this next chapter of hopefully economic prosperity and health. I hope you'll enjoy the show as much as I enjoyed the conversation with Ian. So Ian, uh, thank you so much for making time. I know you're busy. I know that you're in the midst of setting up this exciting new project. I know that there are many demands on your time. And so I'm very grateful that you'd, you'd spend a moment just talking through what it is that's really top of mind for you right now. Something that you are, I think, increasingly passionate about. And it, and it sounds to me like you found a new uh, groove, <laughs> if you like, right. um, to spend your time and energy on. So please tell me a little bit about the Hatch Institute and where this idea was born. Right. So the Hatch Institute, and thanks very much for having me, Mark, by the sure. way. The Hatch Institute was born out of my, my passion for culture and people, leadership, and in particular, race relations, mm -hmm. which has been my thing over the years since I started as an entrepreneur when I was about 22 years old, and I've been doing various projects and businesses ever since. And this, over the years, I, I just developed an interest in the people side of business mm. and, and in particular leadership culture. And because I was involved in various uh, activities that, that involved a lot of black people in my early days, I started to understand race relations and the impact that that was having in the cultures of the workplaces I, I was setting up. So when I eventually sold Sorbet in 2017, 2018, mm. I, uh, I decided that that the next step was to try and start a coaching and consulting business that would ultimately be able to teach people all the things that I had learned over the years and the sort of culture blueprint that I had created for businesses and in particular in the Sorbet business that, that I, I ran for about 15, 16 years. Mm. And so I had learned so many things over the years from so many different people and, and learned about the importance of understanding the socio-political environment in which we were living and how that affected leadership as well as culture. So I decided, okay, well, this is what we've got to do now. 
is start a hatch sort of coaching and consulting business and, and see if we can help people understand the importance of culture and race relations and leadership in terms of, of business productivity and service in particular. So I'm certainly on your team and, and historically, especially on the show, in fact, I've had a couple of conversations about the power of culture in determining an organization's ability to adapt to change. But if we're honest with ourselves, Ian, there are a lot of businesses that don't care that much about that component of what they do. It's not necessarily held as the number one priority. And if it's something that is spoken about, often it's done so because it's deemed to be a necessity. We, we, we need, we care about our people uh, kind of stuff. Do you sense that this component of leadership mm. is becoming more an imperative than a nice to have? And if so, what's changed that's made that the case? I think it definitely has, Mike. It's become an integral part. You know, people often ask, what is the relationship between culture and the bottom line? Mm. And I say, well, culture is the bottom line, as mm. far as I'm concerned. If you don't have a strong culture, then you're never going to be able to meet the objectives that you have set for yourself in terms of your return on investment and profits and all of that. So culture is absolutely the bottom line. And I think more and more people are starting to realize that. Mm. that you can't ignore the people side of the business. It's no longer that wishy-washy, fuzzy-wuzzy, soft HR shit that, that people put on the side and, and they tick the box every now and then. Mm. It's become central to business, and really that, that's what it is. Well, I suppose that the reality is that a culture is not something you buy or bolt on or paint onto the front of the building. It, it, mm. Every organization has culture. The determining factor really is how intentional that is, or whether you've just kind of allowed it to happen as a, as a, a sort of a mistake or a natural byproduct. How do you think about building culture? How, how does that overlap with your idea of what makes an effective leader? Okay, so I've developed a new word called culture nearing, mm -hmm. which, which I've now actually trademarked. And, oh, well done. Uh, and you won't find that in the Oxford Dictionary just yet, but hopefully one day you will. <laughs> and, and so cultureneering is the ability to build a culture out of a diverse workforce that creates a platform from which you can deliver great obsessive customer service. Mm -hmm. So it's as simple as that. At the end of the day, the purpose of work is always to serve. Mm. It's not about making money. You don't go into business to make money. That's the first mistake. Mm. You go into business to serve the needs and wants of people, and if you do that well, then you'll start making money. Mm. So that has to be at the very core of your culture, the understanding that the purpose of work is to serve, the reason for being your, you know, your very existence as an organization is to meet the needs and wants of your customers, and you create some core values that support that process. So right at the heart of any culture is the reason that you are there. You know, in the first place. And too many people think that that reason is about making money. It's never about making money. Making money is always the result of what you do. It's never the purpose of what you do. And I think that's a big paradigm shift that people are starting to have to realize, that it's not just some sort of financial thing that's going to drive the business. It's the service element, and it's meeting the needs of your customers at the end of the day that's going to allow you to create the kind of wealth that you're looking for at the end of the day. So money is always the reward and service must always come first. So right at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned the phrase race relations. Yes. And I imagine there might be some listeners who 
for them, there's this sort of a stigmatized crocodile brain response to that term because in South Africa, it is it is a weighted and often quite political topic that people don't often electively bring up at the dinner table if it's a safe space. <laughs> you know, it's the kind of thing that we feel like we need to address when it's an issue or talk to me about... I mean, this is, this is a, you and I could probably record four shows on this topic, and I think I'd love to, but is this a specifically South African problem, or are you suggesting that modern leaders cannot take seriously their role unless understanding diversity and inclusion, which, you know, I hate mm. using those because also that's kind of stigmatized and, mm. and a little bit overused, but until we understand what makes us more alike rather than different. Talk to me about the importance of that in, in the Hatch's philosophy. So race relations is, is an integral part of our philosophy. And, and the reason that we do that is, you know, since I was a young man, I, I started to realize that um, racial polarization in South Africa as a result of our long discriminatory history has led us to become one of the least productive countries in the world. And, and I, I believe without any shadow of a doubt that our single biggest problem in terms of production and productivity and service in this country is racial polarization. Mm. Because we cannot build strong cultures when we have such an, you know, a sort of polarized in working environment. Mm. And that's, that's the key to it. So, so I've always said if you want to be a great leader, you have to be able to deal with the issues of race and, and the impact that it has. So we call it culture-driven leadership, mm. which means that you have to have an additional skill over and above the traditional leadership style. And that additional skill is being able to navigate the socio-political environment in which you live and work in South Africa. We, we sometimes as businesses want to try and ignore or to sort of leave it outside the gate type thing, mm. the, the issues that are Im impacting on the country as a whole. And, and it's very, it's, I think it's naive and, and, and irresponsible, quite frankly, to not take that into account when you're trying to manage a business. We're all coming from different environments with different beliefs, different systems, different histories, different paradigms, unconscious biases. There's a whole lot of things that, that we come into the workplace with without, you know, in terms of, of the different race groups. And somehow... There's going to be some sort of a magic formula that's going to get everybody working well together. That, that's just not, it's not going to happen. That's not a reality. So the culture-driven leader has to understand how to navigate that. And the only way to do that is to have the uncomfortable conversations, the ones mm. that you were talking around the dinner table that we mm. don't have too often. You know, those uncomfortable conversations around stuff like white superiority, black inferiority, um, white privilege, black economic empowerment, etc., etc. All of those things then become important so that people can talk about them, learn about them. The average South African, and white in particular, but, but a lot of South Africans are not fully aware of the extent of the damage that was done during apartheid in terms of racial polarization. Mm. People don't know, for example, that the 1953 Bantu Education Act stripped the black people of, of, of the ability to learn maths and science because Hendrik Fawitz stood up and said, you know, black people in this country will never rise above the level of laborer and mm -hmm. therefore there is no need to teach a maths or science. Mm -hmm. So they just robbed the entire population of the ability to compete in the economy. Mm. So when we talk about corruption now, which is really horrific, 
you know, the corruption in those days was, was equally bad, if not worse, because not only did they steal money, they stole the whole country. Mm. And, and they took citizenship away from people. And I, I could go on and on and on. But it's just, it's important that we understand our history. That's really important. Because without that, we can never fully understand the extent of the problem in South Africa. Now, a lot of people say, let's put it all behind us. I'm tired of hearing about the past and apartheid and all that stuff. Mm. And, but I think that's a mistake. Now, you have to deal with that because that's at the very source of all the issues. I don't think there's anything in South Africa, quite honestly, that is not touched in one way or another by racial polarization. Every single element of our society and our economy and everything, you know, has got issues of race attached. And so somehow we have to deal with that. We can't, we can't not deal with it. So for me... The important thing is we, we need to be able to revive hope in South Africa. I think we've lost some hope. There's a little bit of a sense of hopelessness that's mm. pervading our societies, all of them at the moment. And we need to try and change the narrative from all the negativity. So we can't easily change a country, you know, I mean, particularly after 300 years of history. Sure. But we can try and change individual mindsets. We can shift the mindset and change the, the paradigms and get people to start looking at themselves, a bit of a journey of self-discovery and, and understand how they sort of came to be what they are and that they are a product of their past and their paradigms and their beliefs and their biases that they've grown up with and how that impacts on other people. And then we, we help people, you know, we have these race relations courses, and we help people to understand these biases and, and what it means and how it affects other people that, that are different to them. So there's a lot of stuff involved here, and it just, it just shows how complex leadership needs to be at the moment. It's not a straightforward thing anymore. If you, if you don't know how to handle all this, you're not going to be able to be as effective in building a strong culture as you could, for sure. Yeah, I think that's... I think even if you're somebody who's listening to this and going, I still don't agree, what is very difficult to disagree with is how much of a necessity it is for le modern leaders to take a more systemic view of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the one of the things that COVID has taught us is that we just can't just think about your own four walls. You can't just think about your own neighborhood. You, you, you kind of have to expand your mind into all of the other variables and decisions that other people are making and why they're making those decisions. And I think one of the really catastrophic impacts or effects of apartheid was it robbed us of an inability to think in terms of systems and and communities and the strengths of those things it, it it forced us into smaller tighter more afraid units and when you do that and when you stop having conversations with people that are different to you you lose the ability to appreciate nuance you know so i i love that topic of uncomfortable conversations or or even just difficult or important or robust debates it, part of that i think is a symptom of the world around us right now and the instant gratification we have but we've lost the ability to have those really good and and the really sad part is i don't think there's a space and I, and what i'm hearing is that you're trying to create that but there's very few spaces where people can sit down and go like I'm really struggling with this. <laughs> I think I think I'm a little bit racist, Ian. And um and who can I talk to about that? And how can I work with that? And what can I do practically to address that? Because if I if I say to you, and I, I think I've used this example on the show before, but if I say to you, Ian, I think I'm a little bit alcoholic, mm. you would go, I'm sorry. That sounds terrible. 
And how can I help you? Because here are some of the things that you can do. There's this program over here. I know of this rehab center. Perhaps you can see a psychologist or a therapist. But if I say to you, I'm a little bit racist. First of all, I better not do that on Twitter. (laughs) But second of all, there's very little space for us to proactively address our own hereditary, our congenital cancer, right? This thing that we've kind of carried over generations. So what are some of the practical steps that you you spoke about race relation workshops, but Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you start this conversation with somebody who earnestly wants to go on that journey? Right. So what we do is is we, we start off with a group of people, essentially, who are telling their stories. I call it the Mini Truth Commission, <laughs> which which is really about getting people to share their, their upbringing. You know, people of different backgrounds, sharing their upbringing is a really useful and powerful way to start to get people to see what it was like on the other side. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the problem with with this country in particular is that we've been isolated, we've been separated and we've never really had the proper opportunity to see how the other side lives. Mm. And that was one of my advantages as, as a young boy, because I, I was involved and I had some mentors that, that worked with me, that took me into Soweto when I was in my early 20s, and, and I really started to get a feel for what was going on. And that, to me, was one of my privileges, was having you know that, that sort of uh, ability to, to have seen all those things. But, but I think what, what we want to do is we want to get people to see that outside of their little comfort zones, there's a hell of a lot to, to still learn about and understand and why there's so much anger. You know, there's huge anger around race still after all these years. You know, mm. 26 years we've had democracy and so-called freedom, and yet race relations is still a, a powder keg in this country. Mm, mm. And so, so every single person, in my view, has a moral obligation to look at themselves and to ask that question, what can I do if I'm a little bit racist? And and the thing is, firstly, to understand why. Where does it come from? You know, was it from your parents, your mm. upbringing? So we go back into the past and we try and get people to, to share with us their, their upbringing so that we can get those sort of you know, unconscious paradigms that, that they have and what made them believe the way they do and act the way they do and why they feel so strongly about certain things. And then it's just a process of self-discovery and, and looking at yourself and saying, okay, I am a bit of a racist. It, it's like, in fact, we should do that, like an AA type thing. You know, <laughs> First thing is, you know, hi, everybody, yeah. I am a I'm, racist. Hi, Mike. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a racist. Yeah. So, and, and people don't like to acknowledge that. You know, just, I suppose, the way people don't like to acknowledge that they're alcoholics at mm, first. Mm. But once they do, and, and they realize that this, this is actually who I am. You know, I ask people, uh, do you have any prejudices, for example? Mm, and they mm. say, no, I'm not prejudiced. Mm. I say, well, really? Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's not possible. You sure. are prejudiced. Yeah. You just don't even realize it. Yeah. I mean, you're making choices on, about things all day long that are prejudiced because prejudice is, is a bias and bias is a preference. So it's quite important for people to understand the difference between Prejudice, discrimination, and racism. Yeah. So prejudice is essentially a prejudgment of a person based on the group from which they come. Mm, mm. Discrimination is when you start to act out on your prejudices. So that's when you start to actually make decisions based on your prejudice. And then racism is, is a combination of both prejudice and discrimination, but it comes from a base of power. So the systemic racism that we hear about a lot 
comes from years and years and years of, of, of racism being part of the sort of culture and, and the sort of fabric of society that you have white superiority, black inferiority infiltrated into the minds of people mm. over a long, long period of time. And even today, despite the fact that, that the, the politics has changed and the government has changed in South Africa, there still exists a lot of white superiority and black inferiority type of perceptions. And so just realizing those and working through those, that's how we want to get people to start shifting their mindsets. And as I say, there's a moral obligation, in my view, to, to uplift people in this country and to create equality. You know, a lot of young people will come to me and say, well, why are you blaming me? And, you know, I wasn't there. Don't blame me for the sins of my fathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's not my fault. And I say, yeah, it, it may not be your fault. I mean, I understand you weren't there. But one thing I can say for sure, that you were one of the beneficiaries. So yeah. you're a beneficiary of white privilege. Yeah. And and the more you, you come to terms with that, the easier it will be to understand things like black economic empowerment and affirmative action, which is essentially a way of trying to redress the imbalances of society. And we have a hugely imbalanced society. There's, I mean, the, the equality gap and the, the income gap in South Africa is one of the highest in the world. So if we don't do this stuff, what's going to happen? Mm. The status quo will discontinue. The gap will get wider and wider, and and then who knows what kind of revolution might come at the end of the day when people are just so hurtful of all this poverty that they're going to take the law into their own hands. Mm, mm. So it's a little bit scary, you know. We we really need to understand that this is not something that can sustain itself for very much longer. Yeah. There needs to be compromise on the white part in particular to say, okay, you know, I understand that this has been completely unequal for so many years, if I'm going to help the process, I might have to make a bit of a compromise and allow other people into the frame here. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with... Well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. So my job as host here, as much as I instinctively, because of my political orientation, want to agree with everything you're saying, my job is also to balance out and go, well, in what ways might people be cynical about what we're talking about right now? And I can't help but think of... I don't know if you watch Chasing the Sun. That, yes. Okay. So uh, it's made a lot of news lately, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm actually hoping to interview Gareth, the, the executive producer, soon, because I think it's just a wonderful achievement that it's incredible how quickly we've forgotten how magical that moment was for us, right? Um, right. And how lucky we are to have people that are making those sorts of things possible. But something struck me, and I think it was about episode two, uh, where we were learning about Russie's plan with only 18 months to go to kind of D-Day, you know, everybody sort mm. of judges the, the Springbok team based on its its performances at these types of events. And and his rationale was, first we have to figure out how to win. Then we can solve some of these other problems. And when I say some of these other problems, in that context, 
Uh, there is a lot of complexity around transformation. There's a lot of complexity around the political involvement of its administra- rugby's administrators. And so, so there's a lot that I think the average coach has to deal with that surrounds just how do we win on the day. His philosophy was it's, it's easier for us to come together and solve those, those types of problems when we are winning than when we are losing. Because when we're losing, we tend to blame each other and we go back to those prejudicial heuristics. You know, we assume this and that about whoever it might be. Now, if I transplant some of Russi's philosophy into the business dimension, one argument against what we're saying, or not necessarily against, but alongside it, is that if we really want to solve these things, first we've got to figure out how to be economically progressive we've got to move forward we've got to demonstrate that this place is going to do okay because as soon as we're going forwards as soon as people can start to see or feel senses of upliftment it becomes easier to have these conversations i know there's problems with what i've just said but i'm trying to take the the devil's advocate view so what would your response to the Russi, <laughs> the Russi uh, approach be in terms of let's just sort out the economy first, you know, let's get that stuff sorted out. Then it's much easier for us to do these other things. I don't think it's that easy to translate Russi's plan into the workplace because if if you don't have a strong culture, you know, I think at work the culture needs to come first mm. as opposed to the results. Because if, if, you, if you think and you sort of believe correctly that the, the importance and the power of business and everything, the reason for being, is about service and, and ultimately pleasing your customers because that's how you grow any business and any brand, you, you won't be able to do that without creating a strong culture. Mm. And that's the trick. So I, I believe that you first have to do that. The culture must come first. I've never seen a business that just had no culture went out there and did incredibly well without any kind of sense of a culture. It's, it's just, to me, that doesn't seem realistic. You might get the odd fluke here and there, but there's always something that drives it. And, and because there's so much uh, disparity in, the, in this country and there's so much resentment about the, the inequality, that always undermines culture. It affects the way people think. You know, I've always said that the, the customer experience will never be better than the staff experience. Hmm. And so if the staff is not happy, for whatever reason, they don't feel they've been valued or treated well or they don't feel that they've been treated with dignity or their fairness or whatever it is, there's no way on earth that the customer is going to be able to experience a great uh, sense of service from that company. So, you know, it just makes sense to me to go out there. And that's what we did at Sorbet. We, we got every single person. I did the induction training myself for every single person that came and joined the business. And I would share with them all these philosophies and talk about the importance of, of serving and, and that you don't come to work to make money, you come to work to serve. And that our, our reason for being was touching people's lives. And so when we started the business, when, in fact, one of the first things I did, I was invited to a function which was run by a company called Dermalogica, a skincare business mm. and i i uh, was the only white guy there i mean old guy in particular there was, a, there was all women and i think they must have thought i was some sort of pervert i don't know what they, I, they think i was doing there but anyway 
I realized because I'd been working with black people all my life that they were they were just whites there. The place was lily white, and uh, all the, the the salon owners were white, and the therapists were white. And I went up to one of the managers in the company, and I said to them, "You know, where the black people? Was there like a transport problem or, mm-hmm. or a taxi strike or something?" And they said, "No, no, there's just very few black people that are skin care specialists." And I said, "Why is that?" He said, "Well." This is an upmarket brand, and most of the people that, that use the product are white, and white people prefer white therapists to be working on them. And I'll never forget that. Now, that was late 2004, and I thought to myself, you know what? This is what we need to change in South mm. Africa. And I suppose if I look back now at the Sorbet story, the one thing that I'm really probably most proud of is the fact that we did change the face of that industry and, and that in excess of 90% of the beauty therapists and skin care are now black people in Sorbet. When, when you think about um, modern entrepreneurs that have achieved a degree of success who are custodians of these businesses that are starting to build and starting to gain momentum. Obviously, this is a tough year to talk about that because Mm. a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, have seen their plans slow to a halt or thwarted or or even in some cases tragically decimated. But when when they start to gain some of that momentum, and to be honest, I mean, it's easy to start a business ideologically, right? Mm. All of your ideals and all of your your values, those are great until (laughs) something goes wrong. I've always said the partnerships are the easiest thing in the world until there's money in the bank. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So what questions do you wish entrepreneurs at that stage, you know, I'm, I'm getting going, I'm creating value, I've got some momentum, this is a viable business. What questions do you wish they would ask themselves more as a sense check in terms of some of the ideals and some of the objectives that you've spoken about has been imperative for businesses that are building in a, in a society and an economy like ours. Yeah, I, I think it comes back to the same old thing again. You know, do you really understand why you're doing this? Hmm. That's the first thing. Because if you think I mean, this is just a quick way to make money, I can virtually guarantee failure. That's not going to Why am I really doing this? Why am I really doing this? What is the purpose? Yeah, and and what is the reward? So if I do it well, will I be rewarded? And and then to understand, the, you know, the culture. When I started Sorbet, funny enough, I was fifty-one already at that stage. Um, I already had a culture blueprint, it, so I did it a little bit the other way around. Instead of trying to find a business opportunity and then starting it up and trying to run it and then build a culture around that. I already had the culture that I envisioned in my mind. I knew mm. exactly what I wanted to have there. And so it was the other way around. I then had to find a business to insert that culture. Mm. And so that just happened to be you know, the beauty industry. And in hindsight, it, it's, it's really worked very well because the, if you look at what was probably the most, you know, the strongest competitive advantage that we had at Solvay that allowed us to become the largest beauty salon chain in Africa, with 225 outlets at the time that I left, the, the biggest competitive advantage was the attitude of our people mm. and, and those people towards service and their customers and the relationships that were developed with customers and the loyalty that was, that was built up as a result, et cetera, et cetera. So, so if you get the right culture and you get people to really believe what you believe and that everyone is aligned with the purpose then you really have a good chance of, of being successful in business. 
Well, I mean, I'd argue that even if you even if you don't care about people, which again mm. we've said is is unsustainable uh, yeah. in this day and age, stopping and saying why am I really doing this is always a useful question because I, I meet a lot of people who are exceptionally successful and and tremendously unhappy. And I think often because I haven't stopped to ask, am I am I realizing the things yes. that I hoped I would or that I imagined I would or dreamed I would right at the beginning? I, I think often we become slaves to that uh, how much is enough, a little bit more type of mentality. I want to talk a bit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure as you, as you watched Sorbet grow and as more people became part of that family and as you had different individuals representing your brand as as business owners and 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 franchisees um you must have experienced a dilution or in some cases a degradation or at the very least a threat to the integrity of your values and your business model and that's a natural thing i think that happens when you scale a business when it becomes uh, significant in terms of size or scope or complexity, it, inevitably one of the challenges from a founder perspective is how I maintain the integrity of, of my vision. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you did that and were there things that you were prepared to let go of and if so, what? Right. So I, I was really fortunate in that all three of my children worked with me. Oh, great. And so they were all completely sold. Heavily indoctrinated yeah, already. <laughs> so heavily from an early age, heavily indoctrinated. So they came with all of the same values and everything else, and they helped to, to push that. And and we had a team also that, you know, generally speaking, that was behind us. So, so the things that I would never let go of was the induction training, mm, because mm. that was about explaining to everybody why and what. And, mm. and it was nothing to do about business, it was only to do about values and and purpose and, mm. and and why we were doing what we did and and yes you know as you grow there's definitely going to be a bit of a watering down because particularly in a franchise environment because you're now dealing with you know, you know a couple of hundred franchisees and, mm. you, and you're hoping that each one of them believes what you believe sure and and that's that's not really practical that, that's going to be quite difficult but if you can get the large majority of them on board and the staff on board, you know, then then you've got a chance. So, so I I think um, you know in terms of of the culture, obviously now it's probably changed quite a lot, mm. and I can't say it's got worse or better, but I think the culture's probably changed quite a lot, and and I'm not quite sure what the future holds as insofar as that is concerned. Well, I think the strength of your legacy is that that there are still many remnants of those values, and uh, you know there's so many people that I certainly my experience of the brand is that it it continues to more often than not exemplify those those principles, which I think, again, every founder dreams of is, will it still be there when I'm not there? And how, how do I make sure I, in, I bake it into the DNA so that it's not hugely dependent on myself? I do want to ask you one question, though. I wanted to interrupt you there, but I resisted the urge. Um, in terms of franchisees, there's a slightly different dynamic between somebody who's buying a right to represent your business versus somebody who's signing up to be an employee of that organization, again, in terms of power. To what degree, <laughs> asking you to give away trade secrets here, yeah, that's fine. did you um, vet franchisees and, in, and to what degree and how, right? Because what you're talking about is some quite like significant uh, values-based ideals. Yes. How did you do that? 
Okay, so so we learned as we went there. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I must say, we weren't very sophisticated, in particularly in the beginning, in our selection process, and we paid for that mm. quite badly in the early days, what we call the dark days. <laughs> but but once once we managed to see the light, as it were, we, we started to realize that there were three things that were happening. Firstly, that virtually every single franchisee had started off as a guest of ours, was, was a customer before she came a franchisee. So that was great because at least they had experienced the brand. Mm. They weren't just coming in from, you know, from this left field and wanting to be a business owner. Mm. They loved the brand. So, so the, the passion for the brand became one of the key criteria for selection. Mm. And then the other thing was about people. You know, if somebody said to me in an interview, I love people, and we didn't need to carry on with the interview, just signed them up because this is, you know, business is nothing more than, sp- than people serving people. And so if you're good at people, then, then you're well on your way. And if you love the brand, then you're even more well on the way. And then we can always teach you the, the basics about the beauty industry. You don't have to be a beautician or a beauty therapist to, to run a beauty salon. In fact, the large majority of our franchisees came from corporates. Mm. You know, they, they'd got a bit tired of the corporate environment. They wanted a bit more flexibility. And they were really business savvy. So they came in understanding business. And we always said we would prefer a businesswoman and teach her about beauty than, than a beauty therapist and try and teach her about business. And so th- that was that was the kind of theme. And so we so towards atti- the end, attitude think, versus aptitude dynamic. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, so we, you know, so if they love people and they understood business and they were passionate about the brand, that was that was good enough for us. And then you still can obviously make some mistakes along the way. Sure, but uh, fortunately, it wasn't that bad. So I would, um, I would love to give you a moment just to tell people a little bit more about how they can actually connect specifically with with the institute and and participate and and involve themselves more with the programs and, and, and courses that you're running. But before we do that, for people that perhaps can't practically access that right now, and obviously I'm aware that a lot of what is happening in the world is virtual and not all of our listeners are based uh, geographically in an optimal way to take advantage of it. What practical steps can business owners, leaders, entrepreneurs who are listening take to start to address some of what we've spoken about? Well, how would you encourage them to, Is are there books they should read? Are there conversations they should have? What what is the the the, the three step <laughs> gateway plan to a more intentional style of leadership? What's what's the pixie dust? Um, <laughs> so so books you know, are plenty, especially on leadership. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of books now around diversity and inclusion, but but I don't think that that always really gets deep enough into the thing. So so you know there are enough books to keep you busy and learning about things at the moment, and there's some great books out there as well. But I think it's just about coming to terms with the fact that running a business in South Africa is different. Mm. It's not the same as anywhere else Mm. because of all the complexities. And so being able to understand all of those things, and so that's what we do in our workshops. We, 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 we sort of initiate people and sensitize them to these things and then, then give them the tools to go out there and, and, and try and navigate this um, complex environment that, they, that they're busy working in. And, and then, of course, it's about self-development and, uh, and about looking at yourself. So we do life coaching and you know, yeah. for people to 
be able to identify all of their own paradigms and biases and prejudices and stuff like that, which is quite a cathartic exercise for a lot mm. of people. Absolutely. And, and they, I've seen some remarkable changes in people in a fairly short space of time when, they, when, they, when it clicks and they say, well, okay, I had no idea. And then they give a person a, a little book on South African history uh, and, and just, you know, the real history, not the history we learned at school, but the mm. real history and, and just show them how deeply this this um, inequality runs in South Africa and the impact that it's had on virtually every single person that lives here. So so all of those things, you know, you just got to get that together and then there's workshops and training and there's a whole process of stuff that, that goes on. And in the race relations workshops in particular, we really delve deeply into it. It's the, the whole idea is to, is to learn from each other and then at the same time learn the, the concepts around racism and, and what it really means and coming to terms with those things. So where do we find you? Where do we find the Institute and how do people get hold of you? Okay, so the Hatch Institute has its own website. So it's just www.hatchinstitute. Uh, we can, and then if they want to send an, e- an email, it would be info at Hatch Institute. Is it a .co.za or yes, .com? Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah .co.za. .co.za. And, um, and, and there's lots of articles that I'm writing at the moment and right. I've done a lot of webinars and podcasts, uh, podcasts I should say, sorry, and, and things like that. So there, I think there's a fair amount of awareness out there. And uh, if you can read, if you want, you can go and, and read some of my articles uh, yeah. on Google and wherever else. And I've got a TED Talk there as well that I did uh, back in 2015, five years ago. Super. Well, just you know, on behalf of the average uh, South African entrepreneur, thank you for the example that you set, for the conversations that you're encouraging, and, and for the lives that are being changed uh, as a direct result of that. So we, we're very grateful that we still have you around to look after us and that you haven't gone off to like Dublin somewhere. <laughs> uh, so. I tried to retire for an afternoon nap. I heard they wouldn't let you. Yeah. <laughs> the afternoon nap and then it was done. And well, then, then well I'm grateful you didn't. Okay, thank you so much, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.